Oh yes, hello friends. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. Strap yourself in for today. I'm sitting down with none other than Morgan Housel, ex-writer for The Motley Fool, Wall Street Journal. He's spent more than a decade thinking, reading, writing and interviewing about how to manage your money. And I've strapped him to a chair, put a microphone in front of him and asked him, how do I create wealth in my life? The basics of money management are something that none of us are taught, but all of us need. And today is, it's just crazy. I'm so impressed with Morgan. I knew that he was going to be great, but this just blew my head off. It's one of those episodes that I've already gone back and listened to a number of times, and I'm confident that you will as well. You will have a friend who you know is absolutely awful with managing their money, and I implore you, I am on my knees begging you to send them this podcast so that it stops them from spending their money on useless crap that they no longer require. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Six Months Sober. One of the easiest ways that you can save money is by no longer wasting it on alcohol and taking a break for 28 days, 90 days, or six months is the single most powerful lifestyle change that I believe you can make. Head to the link in the show notes below or go to sixmonthssober.com slash podcast. That's the number six monthssober.com slash podcast and you can check out how you can upgrade your life by taking a break from alcohol. Finally, there will be a lot of new listeners tuning in today. Maybe one of your friends has sent it to you. Don't take it as offense. They don't mean that you're bad with money. They just mean that you could be better. And if you are new here, hit the subscribe button. You get one episode every Monday and every Thursday with the most fascinating humans on the planet delivered directly to your mobile device. But for now, please welcome the wise and wonderful Morgan Housel. Oh yeah, P.S. There's a couple of connection dropouts in this episode. I've worked my absolute hardest to try and clean them up for you, but you may notice a little bit of signal change here and there. Apologies in advance. Mr. Morgan Housel in the building. How are you, man? I'm, I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, me too. Me too. We're talking wealth today, right? Everyone everyone wants it, but I don't know how to get it. It's, it's very elusive. And it's not <laughs> even that people don't know how to get it. I think it's a lot of people don't even think about defining what it is or what it's going to mean to them or what it could do for them or why they want it. I think a lot, there's just a natural urge to want more of it, but answering the question why, it seems like a funny question to a lot of people. Like, of course I want to be wealthy. Why, why would you even ask? But you start getting these like more philosophical questions of like, why do you want to be wealthy? Is it a status thing? Is it because you want more stuff? Is it because you want more control over your time? Is it because you think it's going to erase problems in, you know, that you currently have in your life? If you had more money, those problems would go away. And I think there's a lot of different elements to that. And I think at the highest level, what I've thought about in terms of wealth and that I really believe in terms of wealth and studying this stuff for so many years and studying other wealthy people and thinking about money myself is I think what wealth can really do for you that will legitimately make most people happy is to the extent that you can use wealth to control your time, to give yourself options, to let you do what you want, when you want, with who you want for as long as you want to. That is wealth's great power that it can do for us. But that's usually not what people think about wealth wanting to do for them. Usually what they think about it is more stuff, bigger house, nicer car, better clothes, maybe some travel, whatnot. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. I like fancy cars. I like big homes. I like it all. Um, but we just have so much evidence. It's almost, it's, it's, it's almost cliche at this point to say, you know, buying the bigger house and the fancier car won't make people happy. We have a lot of evidence on that, that there's this hedonic treadmill that people, when they're anticipating getting the Ferrari, that's really exciting. But then they actually get it and they say, eh, it's just a car. It's just got a steering wheel and whatnot. And there's a lot of different elements to that. I think what's really, and this is something I learned when I used to be a valet at a, at a fancy hotel in Los Angeles when I was in college. These people would come in driving their Ferraris, and I would look at that. I would look at the car and be like, "Wow, that's wouldn't it be cool if I had that car? Wouldn't it be cool if I was driving that Ferrari?" And it took me a while to realize the irony of that thought, which was that those people drove in, and I never said, "Wow, that driver, the guy driving the Ferrari, he is really cool. He must be impressive." As an observer, I just said. I want to be in that car. I didn't care about the driver. All I did is I, I imagined myself driving his car. But the guy driving in, when he's driving the Ferrari, he's probably thinking, everyone thinks I'm cool. And they did it. The, pe- the valet on the curb was thinking, I want to be in, like, I, I don't care about you. I just want to imagine myself be sitting in that seat. And I, it was just like this irony of like, no one cares about the guy in the car, but everyone wants to be the guy in the car. <laughs> and and to, this, to, like, to the extent that, you want to buy a Ferrari, and a Ferrari is like, of course, the extreme example. It doesn't need to, need to be that mm-hmm. luxurious, but to the extent that you want uh, wealth to buy you stuff because you think it's going to bring you respect and admiration and prestige, I think it, it, you know there's probably some of that that has a good signaling effect. Mm-hmm. But to a, a lot of that is just a, a misconception about you think people are thinking X, but they're actually thinking Y. I think that's a big reason why the perception of being wealthier seems like, oh, I'm going to be so much happier when I'm wealthy. But if you look at the statistics about how happy wealthy people are, they're just – they're not that much healthy. They're not that much happier than mm. the rest of us. Of course, yeah. there's like a minimum level of meeting your daily needs and comfort and whatnot. But after that, a lot of like the status wealth, the its propensity to make people happy is, is really not there. But I bring that up because – what we know does make people happier, has like a legitimate lasting long-term impact on their happiness is when they can control their schedule, when they own their time, when they can do what they want, when they want, when they can wake up every single morning, seven days a week and say to themselves, I can do whatever the hell I want today. That makes people happy. So if you can use wealth to generate that, to own your schedule, and for ordinary people, maybe that's taking a job that doesn't have a long commute or you know, working in a job that pays less, but it's doing something that you love or in something like that. Or if it's a, you know, at a higher level, retiring early, just retiring when you want to or retiring when you're 32, which is like a big movement these days. Stuff like that does make people happy. When you can control your time, that's a lasting impact. So when I think about wealth at like the highest, the fundamental level, the first question is like, what do you want it to do for me? And for me personally, it's just a a level of independence. It's a level of waking up every day and saying, I can do what I want now. That's what, that's the goal of wealth for me. I get it, man. Man, I've got a, a million doorways open in my mind. One of them being, um, being rich might not make you happy, but being poor will make you miserable. Like, yes. I, I love, I love that quote. And it, it really is, it really is very, very true. Anyone that you know, it's what I call diet brain. You know, when you're on a diet and the only thing that you can think about is food. It's the yes, same, exactly. precisely the same as that if you have money worries. There is My, nothing that happens yes. that is not framed by, but I don't have enough money, but what happens about the next paycheck, but about my bills. Right. My, my mother-in-law brought up an example years, maybe a decade ago now, that I really, I really thought was really insightful. She said, camping is fun. Being homeless is miserable. The difference, <laughs> the difference between those two 
is one is a choice and one is being forced. But you're sleeping in a tent outdoors. <laughs> but, but rich people, and it's like I, I really have to choose my words carefully and not, you know, and I I, I really I try to to really empathize with people who are homeless. But that's I think that's a be- a great way to frame the extreme ends of it. Absolutely, is that it's not even like the absolute conditions that we're in. It's whether we have a choice to do it or not. Yep. And if you're forced to do something that's against your will, you don't want to be homeless. You don't want to be out sleeping in the cold. That is miserable. But if you're if you're camping, it's kind of a thrill to it. And some of that is because you camp for one night. You're not doing it all the time. Yeah. But it's just like I, I thought framing that as uh, you know just the difference between whether you want to do it or not makes all the difference in the world. Hundred percent. There's this great story about FDR, Franklin Delano uh, uh, Roosevelt, where his his mom was talking about. I think FDR was like 10 years old at the time. And he complained to his mom that he was unhappy in life because his entire day was structured in, in a really strict regimen. At 7 a.m. you do this, at 8 a.m. you do that. And he came to his mom and he said, all these rules make me unhappy. So his mom said, okay, for one day you can do whatever you want. It's all, it's all up to you. And his mom wrote in her diary that night that during that day when FDR could do anything he want, he followed his own his old routine. He did the same, <laughs> he ate breakfast at 7 a.m. and then he did his homework at 8 a.m. But just just the fact that he was doing that on his own will rather than someone telling him to do it made him feel better. So it's like uh, people don't know what to do. And even if they get to do what they – if they're doing what they want to do on their own terms, they still might do the same thing. But they're doing it on their own terms. They're camping. They're not homeless. That's such a good distinction. That agency, the the uh, allowance to make a choice. Another thing as well, you were talking about the guy in the car and it makes me think about – uh, the Naval Ravikant quote, which is, um, you cannot take part of someone's life. You have to take the whole. It's like you look at the guy in the car and you think, fuck, that car's cool. But what's the price he's had to pay for that car? Not $250,000. Like, what are the sacrifices he's had to make? Like, how many relationships has he destroyed? How many or uh, uh, she has she decided not to have forego children so that she right. can make it to 40 years old and be the CEO of some company? You don't know what the price that someone has had to pay to acquire that wealth is. And I think it comes back to what you said before. It appears to be that it's very, very essence. What wealth gives someone is freedom agency control of their own time control of what it is that they get to do what they have to do and that's a much more holistic way of looking at it than like dan bilzerian it that, that's not to say that the dan bilzerian approach isn't a good thing but you get what i mean of course you know back to your point when you see the ferrari you don't see what went on to getting that ferrari all you see are the shiny wheels and the big growling engine you don't see working till midnight you don't see you know never getting to hang out with your kids not that everyone who drives a ferrari is in that is in that boat but there's a sacrifice that you don't see but the, for the person driving that Ferrari, they're acutely aware of it. They know how hard they had to work for that thing. So there's a big difference between what you see and what actually what, – what, what it takes to get that stuff. And that I think is another reason why the perception of wealth feels a lot better. The dream – the daydreaming of wealth feels better than actually having it because when you actually have it, uh, you, know, you, you, you realize all the costs that are associated with it. Uh, I, I think there's this thing too that once you've gained wealth, a lot of people get paranoid about losing it. And you don't it's, – it's not easy to think about that before you have it. When, when you're sitting here thinking about if I won the lottery, what would life be like? You think about all the fun trips you're going to take and all the beautiful house and the beach and everything. A lot of people don't – it's very hard to conceptualize until you're there what it's going to feel like to, to think to yourself, what if I lose all of this? What if I make a bad decision? What if I spend it all? What if 
the huge annual bonus that I got last year, that was a one-time fluke. I'm not going to get that again. And then so therefore, maybe I don't want to spend, maybe I want to hoard this. It's hard to really think about those feelings until you're in the trenches. Yeah. It's hard to just imagine those feelings. But those are real feelings that happened to the people doing this. Bill Gates had a quote. Uh, I heard him say this a long time ago, but I've yet, I have not been able to find the source from this. So I'm paraphrasing what he said. But uh, it was something to the effect of, now that he's the richest man in the world, like his biggest, his only money thought was not losing what he had. It was not growing more. He already has more than he could have. It was just not losing it. And how many people who are thinking about Bill Gates' wealth, his money mind frame, think that he's sitting at home worried about losing what he has? He's got more than like it's it's absurd, but that's what goes through people's heads. And I think that it's a really common thing that comes up when you hear very wealthy people talk about the psychology of their own money being paranoid about losing what they have is a big thing that comes up. And that's a stress that is hard. You know, of course there's a, a big point of this where it's like boo hoo. You know, <laughs> yeah. There's someone who's living on the poverty line. That's like, Oh yeah, it sounds really hard. Exactly. But I, there's also a sense, and this is not a, a popular statement, but first world problems are, are real problems. Like mm-hmm. anxiety in your head is real, no matter how wealthy or how absurd it looks to someone else. Anxiety is real. High blood pressure is real, no matter how crazy it looks. <laughs> And a lot of people in those situations have issues that you cannot fathom until you're in their shoes. Yeah. I I, I was talking to James Altucher the other day who is – he's like the patient zero for make it, lose it, make it, lose it, yes. make, yeah. make it again. Um, also as well on that kind of relativistic worldview, I remember this really early memory with my mum and I was walking down the street uh, and – she's i was complaining about something something small i was cold or it was wet or it was whatever and she turned and said um i was only 10 at the time she turned and said christopher look like there's bigger problems in the world than you being cold or wet and i remember turning to her and saying yes but this is my world this is the biggest problem in my world right now we're not absolute beings we are relative beings right i mean one person in the world right now is suffering more than everyone and everyone else, their suffering is just, is, is all just relative, right? That's, it's always like, it, it's all on a spectrum and everyone, no matter where you are in that spectrum, like someone is probably, there's only one person who is, who is suffering more than anyone else. Everyone else is just a matter of perspective. And we all live on that. I mean, I, I wrote a piece um, many years ago that uh, a, a lot of people did not appreciate, but it was, it was during, it was in 2011 during the Occupy Wall Street protests, if you remember that, mm-hmm. where there was a big public backlash. I think a lot of it was justified against the 1%. And it was the 1% versus the 99%. And I wrote a piece that said, look, in the United States, uh, no, in the world, if, you're, if your income is over, I think it was $32,000 per year, uh, you're in the top 1% of the world. And everyone, so, and how many of the people in the United States saying, the one percent are are you know it's unfair they're ruining it they are actually part of the one percent of the world and i didn't mean it in this i just wanted to add some perspective i wasn't i wasn't saying that their protests were wrong i just wanted to say like it's all a matter of perspective mm. and we're all sit on this this spectrum and we all kind of think that we are where we sit is the, the baseline the foundation but it's not yeah. your foundation is like the top of the mountain for other people that sphere of awareness is so biased right like it's not the 1%. It's not down with the 1%. It's down with my 1%. Down with the 1% that I see, the 1% that's close to me. Your 1%. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, so. Yep. There's also a point. 
the point that I want to make too is that you know when I say something like that, I'm not saying you like you people are out of touch because everyone lives in their own world. Everyone like and again like your problems, whether you are like Bill Gates's problems or someone else, like anxiety is anxiety, fear is fear. Losing sleep is losing sleep, no matter how wealthy you are. It still hurts the same the next morning. So like you, we. It's, it's wrong to say, hey, because if you make $32,000, you're in the 1%, so you should feel wealthy. Mm-hmm. Shame on you for not – that's not the point whatsoever. The point is just uh, you know, we all live on this spectrum, and it's all just a matter of perspective. And I think the bigger point is realizing that people who are on a much higher spectrum – it's not that if you're on a lower spectrum, you should feel thankful. It's that people who are on a much higher spectrum, they also hurt. They hurt as well. And sometimes that's not a popular view. I, I get that. But I think, I think to me, the bottom line is like, no matter what your wealth is, the psychology of money and what it does to our feelings and our well-being and the lack thereof is pretty universal. Absolutely. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the basics of, of wealth creation. What is, what is wealth? Is there a difference between being wealthy and rich? And, and how, how do I get it? I think uh, if there is a difference, of course, this is just this is just semantics. This is not, uh, and, you know, this is sort of something I've made up. But the, I, my definition of rich is you have a big income, big relative to your peers around you. So of course, that's a big range as well. But if you have an income higher than most of people around your peer group, you can call yourself rich. Wealthy is much different because wealthy is you have assets in the bank that you can spend in the future, and that's very different from being rich because a lot of people will have. A large income this year, but they're not they're not saving any of it. They're on the razor's edge of insolvency. They're blowing through all of it as quickly as they can. And those are there are a lot of people who are uh, rich in that sense, but not necessarily wealthy. Uh, years ago, Chris Rock, one of my favorite comedians, made made uh, it, it, was, it was in one of his skits, and he was talking about the difference between rich and wealthy. And he says, uh, and I have to preface this thing: this is Chris Rock joke. I'm not <laughs> taking fine. I'm not taking credit for any of the social <laughs> dynamics of this, but he said he said. Shaq is rich. The guy who signs his check is wealthy. Like, that's the difference between. <laughs> like that's, and I think that was a great way to put it. And the, the and the thing is, like, no, Shaq is wealthy. Shaq is like he's he's got an empire. But I thought that was like a great way to frame it. That applies to a lot of us too, because there are people who make forty thousand dollars a year that save a lot of it, and they're wealthy. And there are people who make five million dollars a year that blow that spend six million a year, and they are on the razor's edge of poverty. So it's just a big relative thing that doesn't like rich has to do with your income, but wealth has to do with your savings rate and savings rate is totally independent of your, of your richness of your, your, your annual income. And we've seen this in a big way in the last decade when the fire movement, financial independence, retire early movement came along where you have people who are making 40, 50 grand a year, sometimes, you know, sometimes more a hundred, 200 grand a year, but they live a very low key lifestyle and they save 50% of it or more. And those are people whose incomes are not that impressive, but they're wealthy. And you can compare that to a lot of people that we've heard of. Uh, I, I'm writing about. I'm, I'm writing a book on the psychology of money right now that starts with a story about someone who made a tremendous amount of money on an annual basis and blew it all and went bankrupt. And so, you know, we I think we very often think that wealth is just how much money you make, and it's, there's a lot of evidence that that's not it. It's a personal lifestyle choice more than it is anything to do with the number of zeros in your annual income. Mm. And so uh, to me, it's just been about, you know, it's less how much money you make or what your investment returns are and more just the decisions that you make about how you're going to spend your money and what you value in life. Do you value a big car? Do you value fancy clothes? Do you value value jewelry, going out to dinner, 
a lot of these people, for for a lot of people, including me, some of those answers are, are yes, I do value those things. But there are other things that I really don't value whatsoever. And I would rather save money to build wealth. And that wealth that you save is what you, it's what people don't see. So it's the, like wealth is the, the Ferrari that you did not buy. It's the car you didn't buy. It's the square footage that you did not buy. It's the first class seat that you didn't buy. And I think that's uh, like, of course, that's what it is. Wealth is what you don't spend. It's the wealth. It's the money that you saved up. The problem with that is that when we, when you and I and everyone else is trying to look at the world and see how other people are managing their money, all we see is what they spent. We don't see what they didn't spend. I see the car that you drive. I see the, the, the house that you're in. I don't see the house that you could have afforded, but you did not buy the car that you, that you could have bought that you didn't, that's your wealth. But I never see that. And that's why I think a lot of people have this misconception of what wealth is, is because we don't see it. And I've used the analogy of like, uh, you know, when people exercise, they get into good shape and being in good shape is something that you can see. You can see muscles, you can see, you know, thinness, you can see that and you can see the opposite of exercise. It comes in obesity and whatnot. And then therefore, so everyone else viewing you, I, I can look at you, Chris, and say, you look like you're in good shape. Thank I you. can see that you probably, I can see that you exercise because I can see it. But, but I have no idea what your net worth is. I, I can't see your bank account. I can see your physique, but I cannot see your bank account. And that's why I think uh, something like exercise is something that it's not very controversial. Like people understand what it is. They have, a, they have role models. They have anti-models. Wealth is totally different. For wealth, there's people who live that you, that you know. I think almost everyone knows someone who is 10 times wealthier than you think. But you don't know that because you can't see it. Mm -hmm. But there's no, but there's no one who is ten times heavier than than you think. <laughs> that doesn't exist because you can see it. So I think like the fact that it's just hard to see wealth makes it very difficult for people to wrap their head around and learn about. Absolutely. Again, I, I can you can tell that I'm currently spending a lot of time researching Naval Ravikant because every quote I'm coming out with is his. But the, the forefront of my mind. Uh, and he has a thing where he talks about socialized rewards versus internalized rewards. And he talks yeah. about the gym being a socialized reward, meditation being an internalized reward. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely the same dichotomy that we've got going on here, right? And even the wealth that some people have that is being shown outward is, as you've identified, it's not real wealth. I absolutely love that quote that your wealth is the Ferrari that you didn't buy. It's the square footage right. in your house that you didn't choose. I think that's such a great heuristic for people to use. And again, with that, this is the sort of message which I think helps to educate people about what wealth is. We are mimetic beings, right? We just look around and see what other people are doing. You're like, that guy's got money. That guy's got a fancy car. What's he doing with his money? It must be fine. And you just, oh, well, right. I, I'll take that. You know, we don't learn about how to become wealthy in school. So I'll just learn by proxy of what other people do that have money. But you don't know if that guy, as you say, that guy's just on that absolute razor's edge. And next month, next year, he's going to be filing for bankruptcy. So do you Sure. And here's the thing. There like there are of course there are a lot of people who drive Ferraris who are legitimately wealthy. The only thing you know about their wealth is that they have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars less than they had before they had the car. That's all you know about it. So there <laughs> there is a lot and there's also a lot of people driving Honda Civics, driving Honda Accords, driving Toyota Camrys that are very, very wealthy, but you would never know it. So we just don't know how to size these people up. And when you don't know how to size someone else up, most people have a lot of misconceptions, just a lot of distorted thoughts about what wealth is and how it's generated. That is, uh, I, I think, why this topic is so difficult and uh, sets people on, on a, a, a painful path very often. Got you. So 
fundamentals is wealth just what you don't spend is that it or is it more about things that generate money on their own or is it money in the bank is it if i've got assets that are earning passively how does that all fit together i i think i think less about that it's more just what you've chosen not to spend take the most extreme example in the world jeff bezos bill gates they're both worth let's just round and say they're both worth about a hundred billion dollars they could have spent that money in the past jeff bezos could have sold all of his amazon stock in 2001 and gone gone out and done whatever, but he didn't. He left it there. So his wealth is what he did not spend. That's true for everyone at every income level. Uh, so uh, to me, it's less about how much you're earning on that wealth, whether it's like cash in the bank earning no interest, that's wealth. Uh, stocks in an index fund, that's wealth. Even the, the equity in your home, your real estate, that's wealth. You know, it's, it's not liquid wealth, but it's still wealth. It's just what you have not spent because I think anything that you could spend but you have not spent is wealth. That's, that's what it is. If you have if you have the option to spend it and you choose not to, that is to me that's the definition of wealth. I love it. So how do I go about? I, I just need to spend less. I need to have money in the bank account. Are there any real fundamental principles about how I can maximize my wealth? How I can make the most of it? Uh, the easiest way, Chris, is just to be born to a wealthy parent. That's the, that's the easiest <laughs> That would be way. great. Yeah, yeah. Dynasty money. That's what I want. And of, of course, I say that tongue in cheek, but there's, that's honestly, I think people very often overlook not the money that they necessarily inherit from their parents, but how much, how many doors are either open or closed for you based on who your parents are. A very good economist named um, Bashkar Mazunder, who has shown that income among brothers is more correlated than height or weight. So literally, if you have a brother that is tall and rich, you are more likely to be rich than you are tall. It's more correlated. It's more like the income among brothers is more hereditary than height or weight. Um, because those brothers probably had the same educational opportunities. They probably had the same doors open by their parents in terms of, hey, I can get your job or I can't get you a job. I can send you to a good school or I can't send you to a good school. So it's not like it goes both ways. The income is correlated on the downside and the upside. And it's, it's easy for a lot of people to... Uh, to overlook how powerful that is, that some people are just born on a very different uh, base. And it's no one wants to, I think if you are very successful, you don't want to say, well, I just got lucky. <laughs> like successful people don't want to say that. And, uh, but it, of course it's true. It's always true. You know, I've written for something really minor that might not seem like a big deal, but to me, it's just, it's just extraordinary. Bill Gates went to the only high school in America that had a computer. <laughs> like you think of like you think about that and it's just like of course he was lucky that's not to say that he's not talented he's not smart he's not motivated he's all of those things but look where he started it would and he had no input on that he went to this high school it's called lakeside school in seattle uh, I, I i believe the story was because he was kind of he was uh very smart and not doing well at his old school because he was so much smarter than the other kids so his parents put him in this private school lakeside in seattle that happened to have a computer and he found it. And who else was at the school? Uh, was uh, was Paul Allen? The other, you know, he Paul Allen was at the same school, and they started working on this computer together. And then, and and then Microsoft came out of it. That's not to say that Bill Gates would not be enormously successful anywhere else. But he would not be Microsoft Bill Gates. He might be Attorney Bill Gates or Doctor Bill Gates, very successful entrepreneur Bill Gates, but not a hundred billion dollar Bill Gates. Like that part was a luck. And he he's admitted this. He said this is not a direct quote, but he said something to the effect of, "Without Lakeside, there would there would not be Microsoft." That might actually be a direct quote, but I don't know. It was very close to that. 
So he's he's not in denial about this. But I think there's that for everyone. I've had a certain amount of luck. You've had a certain – everyone has a certain amount of luck and misfortune. Bill Gates had a certain amount of misfortune. Bill Gates, not to harp too much on this, but uh, when Bill Gates was in school, he had – uh, his best friend was named Kent. I'm forgetting his last name, but his, but his name was Kent. And Bill and Kent were the the two computer geeks, and they did everything together. They were like inseparable best friends. They were equals in terms of their computer programming ability. And um, Bill Gates said, "This is in uh, the documentary that's on Netflix." Bill Gates was reminiscing about Kent, and he said, "Yeah, you know, Kent and I. I'm sure we would have gone to college together, and we would have we would have worked together. Kent may have been a co-founder of Microsoft." But he died in a mountain in a mountaineering accident when he was like 18 years old. So that's like that's the other side of Bill Gates got extraordinarily lucky. Kent got extraordinarily unlucky, and that's like risk and luck. I've always said are the are the opposite sides of the same coin. They're both this idea that our outcomes in life uh, are influenced by more than just the effort that we put into life. And that I think people know that of course, but it's so easy to underestimate how powerful those things are. And then, so to, to bring all this back, when you said, you know, "How do I get wealth?" Uh, you know, there, I'm saying it tongue in cheek, but there's a really true statement in here of like, you, you have to be born lucky. You don't have to be born lucky, but oh my gosh, does it help? And no one should pretend that um, you know a college-educated white male in the United States is on the same plane as, as a child born in Somalia. You know, and of course that's an extreme example, but we mm-hmm. everywhere within there, there's a very powerful spectrum. Um, and so, and so that's that's a, a huge part of building wealth that we shouldn't overlook. Mm-hmm. And then so that's 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 the first point I want to make. The second point is so much. And we we talked about this earlier. So much of building wealth is just the lifestyle that you choose to lead. That you choose to lead. And this is true at all incomes groups. But living below your means is everything at at any income group, at 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 any income level. Choosing to live below your means is the single most important thing to do. To, to build wealth. And a lot of what that is, of what living below your means is, is just suppressing your ego. To say, I could spend X, I could spend 10, but I'm only going to spend eight. And the difference between the two is like my ego going down. Like I could have a nicer car, but I'm, I'm no, I know I'm, I'm not going to do it. I could have more clothes, but no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it. It's that gap that you're pushing against that's really meaningful. Point that I made recently um, about where you really get a benefit from exercising is after you exercise and you're very hungry because you just burned 500 calories and saying, I'm not going to, re- I'm not going to replace those calories with a cheeseburger. My body is saying, Hey, you're hungry. Chris, you're hungry. Cause you just exercised. Go eat a cheeseburger. And you're saying, no, I'm going to suppress that hunger. That's the benefit of exercise. It's the suppressing that really helps you. Even though, you feel, you, even burn, though you feel I, like you've earned it, right? You feel like you've earned yes. the cheeseburger. You feel like you've earned the money. The money is in your account. I worked hard for this money. I should be able to spend it. But you have to willingly say, I could and I deserve it, but I'm not going to. And it's not, it's not the earning. It's, the, it's that push down that, that is what wealth is. And that, to me, I think is really important. It just gets back to like the fire movement of people who make fifty grand a year, but that save half of it. They just have a tremendous propensity to keep pushing down, 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 and they're wealthy because of it. And because they're wealthy, they have control over their time. They can retire early. They can do whatever the hell they want, and they're happy for it. How much of someone's set point, their materialistic set point? do you think is predetermined and how much is in our control? Because I'm fascinated by thinking about this. I very fortunately have a, a low set point for materialism, 
right? Like I, I don't take it doesn't take much materialistically to make me happy. I like nice things, but I like a new Nike T-shirt, which I'm currently wearing, or you know, like yeah. whatever. Like I, you know, I'm not. I don't have huge, huge materialistic goals. But I can imagine in some other iteration of the world, if my mum and dad had been more like keeping up with the Joneses when I was growing yeah. up and that your what you wore was a marker of your worth and, and other things like that, uh, I can imagine a very different me. Um, how, how much of that do you yeah. think can kind of be learned and unlearned? I, I, think, I think you're onto something really powerful. And I think a, a very extreme example of this, but that we see very often are people who come from very poor backgrounds and become professional athletes. And they might go from literally from food stamps to making $20 million a year. And I think those people have a much higher propensity for flash, for the biggest homes and the fanciest cars, because it's like, it's like a chip on their shoulder from their past and showing like, I've, like, I used to be there, but now I'm up here. Whereas if you were born with a certain level of wealth, I think there's less just trying to prove yourself. You're just kind of like, like, this is me. And look, I'm, I'm where I, I, I don't really have much to prove. This is just who I am and who, it's who I've always been. So I think you're onto something really, really important, which is kind of how you're raised, not just how you're raised, but your social status in life is really important. My, my wife, uh, I, I say this with, with confidence, my wife will love me no matter what clothes I'm wearing or car I'm driving. If that were not the case, if I did not get as lucky with my spouse and I had a spouse who was really adamant that I drive the fanciest car, I might have a much higher propensity to spend than I do today. So has my spending been influenced by um, the way in which my spouse loves me? Absolutely. And that's, you know, I, I can't, it's easy for me to say I'm frugal and I don't spend that much money and therefore you should too. When things that are outside of my control, like the spouse that I happen to get lucky, it has a big influence on my spending. And that's why it's, there's really no one size fits all advice. Mm. And I, sometimes I really get upset with, uh, I'm not upset, but I, 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 I don't, I don't like financial, uh, pundits or financial advisors who say you should do this. It's like, it's different for everybody. And so I think if you can add context about how people think about wealth and try to add different perspectives to think about it, but then saying, now that I've maybe helped you think about it, you got to go figure out what works for you. It's kind of the way to do it because we're all in such different, we all have different goals. We all have different uh, aspirations. We've come from very different backgrounds. We see the world through a totally different lens through no fault of our own. It's not because I'm smarter than you or you're smarter than me. It's just we've seen the world in a, in a, in a different area um, through a different lens. So people have very different views on what's important to them. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that has a big influence on spending. One of the things that I tell the guys that work for us, we have a, a lot of formative years, the adult formative years, as I call them, 18 to 21, big group of university yep. students who come and work for us. It's their first professional position. It's the first time they've earned even a moderate amount of money, usually. And I'm talking to them about the way that they spend their money. And I'm like, look, man, like you have two choices here. You can choose to keep some back and then spend on the, the summer holiday or whatever it is, or you can continue to spend as you earn as it comes in. But if you drill this materialistic lifestyle now and you don't break that habit, it's going to be, number one, harder for you to do later in life. And number two, if you still have a materialistic habit when you get to be in your later adult years, you'd better hope that you've got an amazing job. Because if you don't have an amazing job and you've still got this materialism trigger going, like you are in for a very, very tough time because you're never going to feel good enough. You're never going to feel like you're earning enough. Yeah, I think, I think to bring this back to another analogy about athletes, 
I remember hearing uh, a football player said, who said, um, a lot of former NFL players are very obese. They're just morbidly obese. And the reason why that occurs is because um, after they after their football careers are over, their eating stays the same, but their exercise is plunged. <laughs> and I think it's I think that's uh, and it's I I, I really I didn't even empathize with that. I'm sure that's the case. If you get used to eating ten thousand calories a day, and that's just your baseline, this is what you do. You eat, you wake up and you eat a, a seven egg omelet. That's just what you do. But you go from working out four hours a day to one hour a week or whatever it is, that's going to, that's going to make a big impact. And I think it's very similar for income and spending as well. If you're making a great income and you're spending a ton of money, you, you set your baseline about what you, that's like your baseline for eating. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I, I only feel good if I'm spending X or if I'm eating X. And then if your income falls for whatever reason, and I think everyone will go through a period in their life where their income falls at some point, some worse than others, but everyone will go through that at some point. You better hope that your spending is in line with whatever your new income is. And it's very difficult to go down. Going down in life is so difficult. Going down one inch is so difficult. And going up 10 feet can feel like just okay. No one ever wants to go down. If you have to, if you have to downsize your house against your will just because it's what you can afford, that's going to have a big impact on your well-being. So to me, it's just like creating a gap between likely future scenarios for my income of like my income going down and what I'm spending today and just making sure that, you know, asking yourself if my income fell by 5%, 10%, 50%, what would that do to my spending right now? Um, and, and maybe something like 50% is, is too extreme to think about for some people, but uh, for, for a lot of people it's not. And I think just looking at your, your habits in life and saying like, maybe this works right now, but let me think about alternative scenarios in the future. And I think the biggest guardian of your happiness, of your well-being, is having the biggest gap in between what you need to spend to be happy and what could happen to your income in the future. The wider that gap is, the better you're going to be because that's you're, you're, you're decreasing the scenarios in which you're ever going to have to uh, push your spending level down. It's an inbuilt say, like, safety net, isn't it? Inbuilt safety net. If you can have a situation where your income can fall thirty or fifty percent, and you still don't need to change your spending, you're you're probably like in terms of financial happiness, well-being, you're probably going to be set for life. If you're in a situation where if you take a three percent pay cut and you got to sell your car, and that's not an extreme example, that's not a crazy scenario that I just proposed, you're going to have a really hard time in life. So I think setting these things that you have control about, how much money you spend, a lot of for a lot of people, how much money you make is not necessarily that in your control to, to a great extent, but how much you spend is much more in your control. And I think it's the more important part of the equation than how much money you make in terms of financial well-being. I love it. Going back to the point that you mentioned about people getting lucky, there's this like hyper cliche now, right, of that guy that we all know that put $1,000 into Bitcoin 15 years ago. And just through the sheer ridiculous market return, now it doesn't need to do anything. You know, that's a perfect example that I've just, uh, I've just sort of had in my head about that. Um, one of the questions that I got off Matt from podcast notes, this is specific to Bitcoin. There might be some people listening who think like cryptocurrency. I've heard I can make, make my fortune on that. Like there's this guy on the internet, a 50 cent once made a, like a whatever. And, and then he sold it to vitamin water, whatever it was. Um, <clears throat> question is, is there any reason it doesn't make sense to invest one to 5% of your net worth into Bitcoin? I think it, it, that can make sense for a lot of people. It does not make sense if the, the, calcul- the, the math that you're doing is by saying, 
oh, I can only put 1% in, but Bitcoin's going to go up 10,000 fold. So that 1% is still going to make me rich. If that's your calculus, I think it's, it's just setting your expectations of, look, Bitcoin's gone up a lot in the last decade. What does that mean for it going forward? No one has any idea. I really don't think anyone has any idea. It's not to say that you shouldn't you shouldn't own it. A lot of very smart people that I know and whose who's thinking and decisions I really respect own more than 1% of their money in, in Bitcoin. I think if you're looking at it as a flyer in terms of this is probably not going to do anything, but there's a small chance that it's going to do well, then fine. I think it's also fine to have 1% of your money in Bitcoin if you just think it's intellectually stimulating. You like the math behind crypto and cryptography. You, it's, it's really interesting to you. I think that's great. We, we don't have to make our portfolios based off of you know the perfect academic portfolio of how are we going to maximize returns. I think if if your portfolio is interesting to you and intellectually stimulating to you and it helps you sleep at night and it keeps you engaged with your money versus just forgetting about it and ignoring it, I think that's a, a great thing. So I, I don't personally own any Bitcoin, but a lot of people who I respect do. That's kind of like a Patreon for content providers right it's like i've got my favorite youtuber and i'm gonna put some some money towards him making his thing so i really love blockchain so i'm gonna put some money into something that contributes to the blockchain and now i feel like i'm a part of it yeah that's 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 a big part of it and uh people feel good about that the biggest uh variable in terms of how well you will do in your investment portfolio this is true whether it's stocks or real estate or bitcoin or anything is your ability to maintain those investments when times get hard when there's a bear market, when Bitcoin's gone down, your stocks have gone down, if you can still just hold on during those periods and hold on f- and, and hold an asset for 10 or 20 or 30 years, that's the variable that's going to really determine your success. And if you love an asset, you're, you love Bitcoin, you love Google stock, you love real estate, whatever it is, if you love it, and by the fact that you love it means that you're going to be more likely to hold on to it for the long run, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. So a lot of people, there are a lot of investors who will say almost like as a badge of honor, I'm not, I'm not attached to my investments. I'm very unemotional about my investments. And they're proud of that. And I've often thought that's not something to be proud of. I think you want to love your investments because if you love them, you're more likely to stick around with them when they get hard. If you don't love your investments and then you, know, you own some stocks and they have a bad year and you're like, ah, you know, I don't love these. I'm just going to get rid of them. Just sell them. That is going to impact your performance to it in a huge way over time. Whereas if you love your investments and, and even in the bad year, you say, look, Google stock's down 30%, but I'm, I love Google. I'm sticking with it. That's going to pay off in the long run. Why? Uh, so I, I, I think because in any asset, no matter what it is, you get paid to deal with uncertainty. That's, that's where paychecks come from in the investing world. Like people don't often ask the question, like you can make a lot of money in investing. Why? Who's giving you this money? Why are you making money? You have to give something up. It's not free. What is the cost of returns? There's a, there's an admission price that you have to pay. And the price that you have to pay for any investment is dealing with uncertainty. It's dealing with saying, I, I'm going to put $1,000 in this stock and it might go down, it might go up, it might flatline, but over time, I think it's going to do well. And dealing with that uncertainty is what you get paid for. So if you can stick with an asset when it's out of favor, when it's going through a period where it's not doing well, if you can stick with that rather than saying, oh, if it's not doing well, I don't want it anymore. Your ability to stick with it and put up with the hard times is what you get paid for in investing. That's where the money comes from. That's the price of admission. And I think people who only want the upside and are not willing to put in the downside um, or when the downside comes, they just say, I, I don't want this. I don't want to own these stocks anymore. Those are people who are trying to sneak into Disneyland. They're not paying the, they're not paying the, the, the cost of admission. 
they don't want to pay the price. And I think if you're willing to pay the price, the rewards are, are great. Um, so if you can just put up with the downside and, and view the downside as this is what I'm getting, this is, this is why I'm going to get made. This is not a punishment, but this is the specific reason that I'm going to do well over time. And if you don't want to pay that price, there are other assets that you can, you can go in that have certain returns like cash. You know, the return on cash is very predictable. You're not going to lose money on your cash. You're going to earn 1% a year. It's very predictable, but it's a low return. If you can take a variable return on certain return, that's where the big rewards come from. So I think, you know, just viewing it as uh, a cost of admission rather than a fine for doing something wrong is a really important way to view volatility no matter what you're investing in. It's a lovely way to frame it. It's the same as going to the gym, right? The discomfort in the gym is the growth. That is precisely yes. what's triggering the growth. If someone said, I don't like exercising, uh, or, or if someone said exercising doesn't work because my arms hurt after I do bicep curls, <laughs> like, they're supposed to hurt. That's, what it's, that's, that's the point. You're tearing your muscles and it hurts and then they'll grow back bigger. That's the whole freaking point. And I think for people that makes sense in investing, and they, or, or for exercising, I should say, and they almost like it. Like, oh, I, I'm so sore the next day. That was a good workout. They get it. But no one says... Oh, my brokerage account in my brokerage account's down thirty percent. This is a good. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, the more that you can view investing volatility through that lens, the better you're going to do over time. I get it. So we've spoken there about um, the success of people who are able to predict things that are coming forward. You know, there's all forex signals online, and you know uh, the a number of websites who can give you advice about what stocks to buy for this year and stuff like that. But I know I've read some stuff that you've put out about the relative success of investors who've actively played the market versus those who've just put their money into a fund or an index and just left it. Do you have some, some examples of that? I think the biggest thing I think in general, just as a, a, a starting comment here, the history of ec- the, the accuracy of economic forecasting, investing forecasting is very, very bad. Even the smartest people with the most information, their ability to truly predict what's going to happen next in the economy and the stock market is horrendous. This is true across generations, around the world. It's just not something we're very good at. And there's two ways to look at that. You could say, one, we're just not smart enough. We're not looking at the right data. We're, we're, doing, we're, we're, we're doing this wrong. Uh, and, and that's why it's, we're not very good at predicting what's going to happen next. I don't really think that's the case. I think people, if we know what events we're looking at and we have the data. I think people actually are pretty good at predicting what's going to happen next. But we're still not good at forecasting because we can't predict, we cannot analyze, we cannot forecast events that we can't even think about because they're complete surprises that no one would ever think about. Let me just give you this current example. The biggest story in the global economy in the global economy right now is the coronavirus. How many people, if you go back three weeks ago, I'm not saying 10 years, go back three weeks ago, when every Wall Street analyst was putting out their 2020 forecast, here's what to expect in the global economy for 2020. How many people said coronavirus? <laughs> Zero. None of them said that. And I think that's, that example is true all the time. That The biggest news story is what no one's talking about. And what makes a big story is specifically that no one's talking about it because they can't prepare for it. So it's not that we're bad at forecasting the economy because we're not doing the right calculations. It's that we can't calculate things that are unknown. And the unknowns are always what moves the needle the most. If you go back historically, September 11th, huge impact on the economy. And on September 10th, no one except the terrorists who were involved with it could have known that it was coming. 
no one, it was not, it was not that our models did not accurately, um, you know, uh, didn't, didn't accurately analyze what was going to happen on September 11th. They just did not know what was going to happen. Pearl Harbor is another example. Um, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers not being able to find a buyer in 2008. These are all things that no one the day before could have known that were going to happen. Um, and things that are su- that are surprising are always the biggest risk because people have a very good ability to prepare for things that they see coming. Which is why I think another kind of uh, good analogy from this from nature is that earthquakes tend to kill more people per event than hurricanes. And the reason why is because earthquakes come out of the middle of nowhere. You can't predict them. They just boom, they're here. Whereas hurricanes, a lot of people in the modern developed world at least can have a one-week warning before it comes. And they can board up their windows. They can evacuate. Of course, that's not a blanket statement because there's people that are in like Hurricane Katrina where we just didn't – we could not evacuate. We did not evacuate people. So it's not a, a blanket statement. But earthquakes are deadly because no one can see them coming and no one can prepare for them. And that's what makes them – that's what makes them so dangerous. The, just the specific fact that they are surprises is what makes them dangerous. And that's true for the economy as well. So every – the smartest people will say, what is the biggest economic risk for 2020 or 2019? I think the right answer is always, no matter what year it is, is the biggest risk is what we're not talking about. And we can't talk about things that we don't know. That's always the case. And a lot of people think that's kind of a bullshit answer, but that's, I think it's always, it's always the case. The biggest risk is what we don't see. I've got a, a article clipping here from Richard Shotton, who's a past Modern Wisdom guest, and he tweeted this out recently. And this is just pure Morgan Housel. It's got your name written all over it. AJ Bell, the investment platform, found that the 10 shares in the FTSE 350 index with the highest proportion of sell ratings from analysts had generated a positive return on average of 28.9% last year. That was greater than the 23.2% return generated on average by the 10 FTSE 350 stocks with the biggest proportion of buy ratings. Yeah, no, that's 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 uh, that that kind of analysis too holds true in the United States. That's almost always the case. But I think a lot of what's going on here is just classic country. I I, I think well, there, there's several things going on here. We could just say it's contrarianism, and because they had sell readings, the stocks were cheap, and because they were cheap, they went on to do well. I think that's pro- that's that's partially true. A lot of it though is that the narratives that make sense that a lot of analysts will say this stock is a sell because x y and z because its industry is contracting because its management team is not very good a lot of those narratives that make sense and are comfortable for analysts even smart analysts to put out there are not actually what drives stock prices over time it might make sense that you know if if this industry is contracting this stock is going to perform poorly but there are so many other variables that influence stock prices that don't fit those really clean narratives <clears throat> you know if the stock market as a whole is going up, then even if that company's industry is going down, the stock still might go up too, just because everything is kind of moving. You know, there's for every individual stock, there's kind of three general dynamics that will move it around up or down. There's the movement of the overall stock market, there's the movement of that industry, and then there's movement of that individual company. And a lot of times when we're analyzing a company, we're just thinking about the news that affects that company or maybe just that industry. But there's also these other forces that have nothing to do with the company or with the industry that have a big influence on stock prices. If this is late 2008, every stock went down. It didn't matter if the companies were doing well, if they were in an industry that was recession-proof, everything went down. 
And if this is 2019 or 2013, everything went up. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking very generally. That's not, that's not 100% true, but it's very broadly true. Just because there were other macro forces that were independent of the company that, um, that influenced price. So I think that's part of the reason why the correlation between um, analyst estimates and ratings that are based off of these narratives that might make a lot of sense don't have that much relationship between what the stocks actually do over the next year. Do you ever get really frustrated having to swim through articles of people who are constantly saying that they know what's going to happen in the future financially or economically? Uh, no, because I don't, I don't swim in that pool. I just, I, I go to a different pool. I don't swim there. I just, I don't, I just don't read that stuff. It's just not relevant to me. And I, and I, I need to be clear that I'm not saying that it's, it's bad, that it's wrong, that it's worthless. That's not what I'm saying, but it's not relevant to the game that I'm playing. Some people, if you're a day trader, then a lot of that news might be relevant to you. But for me, someone who's trying to invest for the next 40 or 50 years, it has no relevance whatsoever. It's not going to influence my decisions. It's definitely not going to cause me to take an action. So I'm not going to read it. And I think it's really important for people to realize that investors play different games. We're not all playing the same game. Some people are day traders. Some people are trying to manage for the next quarter. Some people are trying to manage for the next 100 years. And because we're playing different games, we should not pretend that all the information is equally relevant to us. And so something that is, is relevant to one person, it's not that I can say that's bad information. And that's, it might be good for someone. It's just not right for me. Yeah. And so I, I, just, I just try to figure out what is relevant to me. And that's all I want to read. And everything else, I'm, just, I'm not going to pay any attention to it. So I suppose one man's signal is another man's noise. That's it. That's exactly it. And, uh, you know, this, 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 this happens very often. I think it happens a lot on financial TV where someone says, is this stock a good buy? And the, the right answer you need to ask is like, well, for who? For a 22-year-old day trader or a 97-year-old widow? Those are like, we shouldn't pretend that those are the same people. So is it a good buy for who? Uh, that's a really important question to ask and just realizing what game you're playing and only pay, paying attention to information that is relevant to your game. But I, I think so you get a lot of danger when we're, you know, we're all in the same field running into each other and we think we're playing the same game, but we're actually totally, totally different things. Um, th that I think is a big cause for investor confusion and mistake and regret is taking the cues from people who are playing different games than you. So, you know, you own Google stock and it falls after earnings and you might think, oh, well, like maybe, the, maybe these people know something that I don't. Because they're selling the stock, maybe I should sell too. But maybe the people who sold it are day traders and you're a long-term investor. So like, it might have made sense for them to sell and for you to hold. That makes, that's not a contradiction. That's not a difference in view. It's just a reflection of different games. I love it. Morgan, we made it, man. We made it. We, we made it. it to the end. We got through wealth. We got through the market. We got through Bitcoin. We got through financial forecasting. We've completed it. So... um. Where can we go? People want to hassle you. People want to check out your stuff. Where should they head online? The biggest, the biggest area that I live online is Twitter. My, my handle is Morgan Housel, my, first, name, my first, first and last name. And that's where I spend most of my time online. That's where I'm the most active online. And then my blog is collaborativefund.com slash blog. That's where all my writing live. Amazing. Man, thank you so much. I'd love to have you back on at some point in the future. We can see how this, this year or later in the year has gone down. Let's do it. And uh, you know, later this year, my book, my book's coming out. It's going to be available for sale September seventh. So maybe when that's the case, let's do another episode. We're booked in. Let's get it. Let's get it locked Great. in already, man. I know what your schedule's like, so I'll, I'll reserve myself a date now. <laughs> <laughs> that's smart. I like it. Yeah. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. 